Hey, it's Shannon Ballard. Your Southern Mysteries is an independent podcast. It's made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. So if you'd like to help, you can join Southern Mysteries on Patreon and you get a little something in return. You can hear more than 60 episodes in the Southern Mysteries archive, and you also have an option to support the show and hear exclusive monthly episodes that are new this year called The Lesser Knowns, stories of lesser-known figures related to major historical events. Join me on Patreon today and catch up on all the episodes you haven't heard at patreon.com slash southernmysteries. On August 9th, 1976, around 6.20 in the morning, a man on his way to work in rural Sumter County, South Carolina, discovered the bodies of a young man and young woman. Both had been shot to death. The discovery was the beginning of a mystery that's haunted Sumter County for more than four decades. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring the history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard. This is the mystery of the Sumter County Does. Within hours of the discovery of the bodies off Locklear Road in rural Sumter County, authorities sent them to the Medical University of South Carolina at Charleston for autopsy. At the crime scene, investigators covered every inch of the dirt road near the Florence County line, looking for any evidence. There was no car in the area and no identification on either victim. Investigators found a book of matches from Grant's truck stop in the man's pocket, which indicated the couple had at some point traveled in the West. The truck stop had locations in York, Nebraska, Boise, Idaho, and Lupton, Arizona. Police sent law enforcement in those areas photos of the victims. In Nebraska, a mechanic told police he thought the man could be someone who came in to have work done on his car. He said the car had Washington or Oregon plates, but he couldn't be sure. And that lead never panned out. Investigators canvassed the area around the crime scene and spoke to a man who lived near the dirt road, who said he heard shots the night before the bodies were discovered, but didn't think much of it. This was a rural area in the South, and hearing gunshots was normal. The Sumter County Coroner and Sheriff's Department set about solving the mystery of the identity of these young people and how they ended up shot to death and discarded off a rural South Carolina road. There were no drugs or alcohol found in their systems, and the autopsy revealed they had eaten fruit or ice cream hours before they died. After pictures of the victims were printed in local newspapers in an attempt to identify them, a witness came forward and told police he saw a couple that looked a lot like these two at a local fruit stand. The autopsy report showed the victims were each shot three times in the head, chest, and back. And the murders had been execution style, with a shot to the head being the fatal shot. From day one, investigators faced the challenge of trying to solve a crime when you don't know who your victims are. 
the young man and woman became known as the Sumter County Does. The Sheriff's Department put out a nationwide all-points bulletin containing the victim's descriptions and fingerprints were sent to the FBI lab in Washington, D.C. Investigators hope the FBI might have records associated with the victims in their files that would give them an ID. But there were no matching records. Authorities, once again, were at a dead end. A frustrating turn, because as the Sumter County Deputy Coroner, Verna Moore, said, it was clear these kids belonged to someone somewhere. They had to have families who were concerned about them and their whereabouts. The victims appeared to be in their early 20s, were both white, and police said their clothes and jewelry ruled out these young people being homeless runaways. The woman was described as about five foot five, weighing 105 pounds, with medium length brown hair and bluish gray eyes. She also had two distinctive moles on her cheek. She wore cutoff jeans, a pink halter top with a white muslin blouse, and pink and lavender wedge shoes. She was wearing three silver rings that appeared to be authentic Mexican or Indian jewelry. The man was about six feet tall, weighed 155 pounds, with shoulder-length sandy brown hair and brown eyes. He wore a Bulova wristwatch and a 14-karat gold ring with a gray stone inscribed with the initials JPF. He was wearing faded blue jeans and a red t-shirt with a 1975 IMSA Camel GT printed on it. IMSA stands for International Motorsports Association. The shirt had been exclusively sold at the Florida Sebring race, and it was suggested the man could have been connected to racing. Or perhaps he was a fan on the road to a race when the murders took place. The coroner noted the male victim had exceptional dental work. Dentists who examined his mouth told investigators it appeared the young man was about halfway through the process of having thousands of dollars worth of dental work, root canal caps, tooth caps, and bridge work. It was so distinctive that x-rays of the dental work were sent to the American Dental Association and published nationwide in the hopes it would lead to an ID. Investigators did all they could to churn up leads. Keeping the media interested in the mystery was so important. Calls came in from several states with people wanting to know if one of these bodies could be the body of their missing loved one. But that wasn't the case. Sheriff Ira Bird Parnell told the media that until the victims could be identified, the case was stalled. All he and his chief deputy had was a theory that the couple had been on a cross-country trip when they picked up one or more hitchhikers who murdered them and stole their car. The bodies remained at a funeral home in Sumter County as the sheriff's department continued to field thousands of tips and leads. Four months after the discovery of the Sumter County does, 
police got what they hoped would be a big break in the case. A truck driver from North Carolina named George Henry was stopped in South Carolina for driving under the influence. When police searched his truck, they found a stolen gun with a scratched-off serial number. Ballistic tests revealed this was the weapon used to murder the Sumter County Does. When police interviewed George Henry, he explained he had nothing to do with the murders, and he had an alibi. He was hours away from that dirt road at a hospital with his sick wife in North Carolina the night the man and woman were murdered. Months had passed since this young couple had been killed, which made it hard to prove or disprove George Henry's alibi. He submitted to polygraphs, but there were mixed results and no way to rule him out and no way to prove he was the killer. George Henry claimed his brother Jim gave him the gun, but police learned it had been stolen by a group of thieves operating in the Raleigh-Durham area before it ended up in Jim Henry's hands. The gun's chain of custody made it impossible to determine whether one of the Henry brothers had murdered the Sumter County Does, or the gun had been used in the murders, then passed on to other criminals before it ended up with the Henrys. They released George Henry and were right back where they started. No ID on the victims and no way to know if the Henry brothers were involved. Months later, police would get another lead. An employee of a Santee, South Carolina campground went to them and claimed he had met this couple weeks before they died. He claimed the man's name was Jacques, and that he and the woman were headed to Florida. He became friends with this man, who later shared that he was the son of a doctor in Canada and that he and his companion were on vacation. Police followed this lead, but were never able to make a connection between anyone missing out of Canada that matched the description of the Sumter County Does. For nearly a year after the couple had been discovered, their bodies were placed in airtight coffins. The coffins remained in a building in a local funeral home and were fitted with glass lids. Oftentimes, people would come through Sumter County searching for a missing loved one, and having a glass lid on the coffin made it easy for someone to come in and hopefully identify them. But that never happened. In 1977, they were buried in a plot donated by the Bethel United Methodist Church in Oswego. Sheriff Ira Parnell and his family headed up that effort to make sure the couple had a proper burial. Their grave markers simply read, unknown man, an unknown woman. In the years that followed, their case was featured in Unsolved Mysteries and Court TV, but no tips led police to an identification. Time passed and the case went cold. Over 40 years, After the bodies were discovered on that rural Sumter County Road, the bodies were identified thanks to the diligence of a Clemson man, Matthew McDaniel. He's referred to himself as a victim's advocate volunteer. McDaniel spent eight years trying to solve the mystery of the Sumter County Does, 
researching every detail of the case. In 2007, the victims had been exhumed at the request of Sumter County Coroner, Verna Moore. She took DNA samples for possible identification, but at the time, there wasn't a match. In 2019, McDaniel contacted the Sumter County Sheriff's Office with a suggestion that the DNA be submitted to the DNA Doe Project, a nonprofit that works to identify the dead. That suggestion worked. 44 years after their bodies were discovered, the Sumter County Does were identified as 25-year-old Pamela Buckley and 30-year-old James Frund. Pamela Buckley was originally from Redwood Falls, Minnesota. According to the Redwood Falls Gazette, Pamela was popular in her hometown. She was going to be named Miss Redwood Falls in 1971, but chose to hit the road instead, touring the West Coast with her folk trio called the Sunlending. They played coffee houses and on college campuses. Her family reported her missing from Colorado Springs in December 1975. James Frund was from Langston, Pennsylvania, graduated in 1964, and his friends called him JP. By 1965, he was married, but the marriage ended in 1971. James was also reported missing in December 1975. After more than four decades of waiting and hoping for answers, authorities finally knew who these victims were. Their families had answers as to what happened to them. But there was still the mystery of who shot them and what was the motive. Matthew McDaniel's years of research and dedication to the case could help solve that mystery. He shared his research and theories with the Sumter County Sheriff's Office, who remain committed to justice for James and Pamela. And McDaniel has compelling theories surrounding the murders. The first involves drug smuggling, which in the 1970s most likely involved a connection with organized crime. The murder of James Frund and Pamela Buckley was described by police as execution style which suggests the couple was targeted. This theory relates to the IMSA racing t-shirt James was wearing when his body was discovered. A decade after the murders, several racers and teams associated with the IMSA were arrested and convicted of drug smuggling. Matthew McDaniel made the connection that John Paul Sr., Randy Lanier, and the Whittington brothers were connected to a multi-million dollar criminal organization smuggling drugs into the United States. McDaniel's second theory is that the murders are somehow related to known local corruption in the area where the bodies were found. McDaniel's research revealed several murder-for-hire schemes had been linked to two prominent people in the community, a local bank president named Charlie Smith and a local mayor, Clayton Bingham. These happened around the time of the murders of James and Pamela. And just a few months before the couple were killed, a police officer murdered the police chief in the town limits of Atlanta, 
where the couple's bodies had been discovered. Corruption breeds crime, and there seemed to be a lot of violent crime happening in this area around the time of the murders. Now, there are also less complicated theories, like the couple may have been carjacked, and it went wrong, and they were shot, or they were murdered by a jealous lover. There's also been speculation that James and Pamela were victims of serial killer Henry Lee Lucas. Lucas was convicted of murdering his mother in 1960 and two other people in 1983. Once he was in prison, he met with Texas Rangers and eventually confessed to nearly 600 murders. The Texas Rangers and the director of the Texas Department of Public Safety created a Lucas Task Force to investigate the confessions. They found what they believed to be a positive cooperation with 28 of the unsolved murders Lucas confessed to. The task force cleared 213 unsolved murders based on the Lucas confessions. The idea that one man could have killed so many people seemed so unbelievable that the Dallas Times-Herald investigated the claims and learned that it would have been impossible for Lucas to be involved with some of the murders he confessed to. They also learned the Texas Rangers may have unintentionally motivated Lucas to confess because he was given preferential treatment during interviews. He was taken to eat at restaurants near his prison, often without handcuffs, and he was allowed to freely wander around some police stations and jails on the days the interviews were conducted. The most damaging allegation in the newspaper's investigation is that officers with the Lucas Task Force let the convict read case files on the unsolved crimes he had confessed to. This meant he was able to come up with detailed confessions that led to the closure of hundreds of cases. There was no way to know if he already had information on the crimes and was personally involved or learned about the murders in the case files. The Attorney General of Texas launched an investigation which found Henry Lee Lucas was basically a serial confessor. In the 1980s, Henry Lee Lucas told police he had been in the area where the Sumter County does were discovered. By then, his habit of false confessions was well known in law enforcement, and his attempt to associate himself with a case was quickly proven impossible. To be clear, there's never been a known connection established between James Frund and Pamela Buckley. Because they both went missing around the same time in 1975, it's theorized the couple possibly met while they were hitchhiking. All we know about the two is that somehow their paths crossed and they were executed and their bodies were dumped on that rural dirt road in Sumter County, South Carolina in the summer of 1976. The mystery has yet to be solved, but the Sumter County Sheriff's Office say they do have persons of interest that they are pursuing, and the investigation is ongoing. Matthew McDaniel launched his website, SumterMysteryCouple.com, to share theories about the case and keep the conversation going. He is a private citizen with no connection to law enforcement. 
who just felt a connection to this case and wanted to help solve a mystery. When news broke in 2021 that the Sumter County Doe's had finally been identified, McDaniel released a statement saying he believed this case to be a great testament to the power of the public and police partnering together to resolve cold cases. And he reminded people to focus on what really matters, the family of the young couple, who we should all keep in our thoughts and prayers with the hope that James Frund and Pamela Buckley will someday receive justice. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. To see photos of James Frund and Pamela Buckley, along with sources for this episode, check the show notes at southernmysteries.com. Special thanks to my Southern Mysteries patrons who helped make this episode possible, including the newest members, Jim from Ridgeland, Mississippi, along with Julie, Jay, and Kane, who are supporting and listening from mysterious locations. If you want to join them in supporting this independent podcast and hear the show archive, along with Southern Mysteries shorts and patron exclusive, the lesser knowns, head to patreon.com slash Southern Mysteries to join today. You'll get immediate access to all of those episodes, and it's really easy to opt in and out of giving. Appreciate the support, whether you are a patron or sharing episodes of the show on your social channels, rating and reviewing Southern Mysteries where you're listening right now. Doing any of that helps keep Southern Mysteries going and helps other people hear about this little independent podcast. Thanks so much for listening.